0: The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Take your Bibles and we'll look at Psalm 89 psalm eighty nine this morning we were uh, we were looking at the will of God, and the way that we unpacked that from starting with ephesians uh, five was very much a discussion of the attributes of God or the attribute of god 's will and so as I was finishing up my prep yesterday afternoon, I, I was thinking about what we were going to look at tonight for what are the attributes of God. And I just felt in my heart that what I really need to do was just paint a picture of God as best I can. I know the law forbids graven images. I don't mean that kind of picture. But, but give us a view of God that there is no God like our God. There is none that even comes close to comparing with him. So my goal this evening is for us all to see that there is no God like our God. This is one of the longest psalms outside of uh, Psalm 119, 52 verses. And uh, we won't read the whole thing, but what I will do <coughs> excuse me, is I'm going to read from verse 1 down to uh, verse number 18, and I'll, give, I'll sketch out the rest of the argument and what he's doing with the psalm. And we're going to focus really on verses 5 to 18 and mostly on the last five verses of that, 13 to 18. But let's read together. And he says in uh, Psalm 89, beginning of verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens thou wilt establish thy faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever. And build up your throne to all generations. And the heavens will praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like thee, O mighty Lord? Thy faithfulness also surrounds thee. Thou dost rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. Thou thyself did crush Rahab like one who is slain. Thou did scatter thine enemies with thy mighty arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine, the world and all it contains. Thou hast founded them, the north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at thy name. Thou hast a strong arm, thy hand is mighty, thy right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of thy countenance. In thy name they rejoice all the day. And by thy righteousness they are exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and by thy favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. The psalmist asks the question three times, all in reference to the heavenly host answering the question. He says in verse 6, who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? And in verse 6 again, who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? And then in verse 8 he says, O Lord God of hosts, who is like thee, who is like you, O mighty Lord? But it's also a question that the psalm writer wants us to answer for ourselves. When we look at the Psalms, we can say, who is like the Lord our God? Who can even be compared to the Lord our God? So beside his written use, which was designed for the worship and praise of God's people Israel in the Old Testament, we can also use this Psalm as we work our way through it as reasons and grounds to just sit back or lift up our heart and our voice and worship and praise the living God. The thing that's surprising about this psalm, when you read that first part there, it just sounds so glorious and so joyful, but actually what the psalmist is doing is he's constructing an argument, and what he's doing is he gives it as he's setting up uh, an argument where he's going to pray at the very end and ask God to remember his covenant faithfulness. Now, the psalmist praise an exposition in verses 1 through 18 about the loving kindness and faithfulness of God is the basis for a lament. In fact, if you hit 38 and you bring this beautiful psalm of praise to God for his faithfulness and his loving kindness over and over again, those two terms are mentioned. And then he hits verse 38 and says, but... Thou hast cast off and rejected. Thou hast been full of wrath against thine anointed. And you kind of go, whoa, what happened there? And what he does is he describes a terrible calamity that's happened in Israel and terrible judgment that God has brought against Israel. So what he does is he uses this great exposition of God's loving kindness and God's faithfulness. And then he says, what happened? Where were you when we needed you? And he laments this long lament in 38 down to verse number 48. And then he hits 49. He says, Where are thy former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which thou didst swear to David in thy faithfulness? Remember, remember, O Lord. He's calling God to remember his own covenant faithfulness to his people. And he says, uh, how, do, how I do bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which thine enemies have reproached, O Lord with which they have reproached the footstep of thine anointed and he finishes off verse 52 blessed be the Lord forever and you see that change when he's going to have faith in God again he's going to trust God again so what's happening is, this man named Ethan the Ezraite, and up at the top of your Bible, you should have a little uh, heading there, a little title, A Mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. He wrote it, and you say, why did he write it? Well, he wrote it after some great and terrible event in Israel's history that gave them reason to think that God had indeed forgotten his loving kindness and faithfulness. Most likely, he wrote it after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and he wrote it, as the grounds of lament and prayer, like we said. And in a sense... He's doing exactly what we were talking about this morning. We talked about praying the prayers of Scripture. He's going to God, and uh, some of the scholars say you can actually pick out different pieces of other psalms that he's woven into this text here. And he's, in a sense, he's taking other psalms and saying, look, this is what we used to sing, Lord. This is what we used to say about you. Here's what you have told us about yourself. Your loving kindness and your faithfulness never cease. And he used it to build an argument, and he says, where are you? Remember, And he calls God to remember his own word and fulfill his own word to his people, which is exactly what we do when we pray scripture. We say, Lord, you wrote this in your word. Lord, fulfill your word to your people as we come before you and cry out for you to do it. So most likely he wrote it after the fall of uh, Jerusalem in 586 BC, and he wrote it as a lament for the people of Israel to sing. And I think there's another purpose here too, just woven into it, not only do the people of Israel sing this as a prayer to God, but they sing it as a reminder of God's past loving kindness and faithfulness and as a hope and a faith builder for God's loving kindness and faithfulness to come again. And of course, we all know the story, don't we? God left them in, in uh, Babylon for 70 years under judgment, and then God brought them back and restored them back to the land and gave them back uh, their place Not all the way; they didn't get a king back until many years later. But they did give him; he did give him back Jerusalem and the land. So, how do you unpack the psalm? The first four verses are kind of an introduction. He says, "I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever," and so on. And then verses three and four. If you notice, your Bible should have quotation marks on either side of that. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. And the writer is recounting and recording for God. This is the covenant you made with David. There will always be a king to reign on your throne. And then he goes in this long, beautiful section from 5 to 18, where I want to focus on how the heavens praise the Lord. In verses 5 to 18, he expounds the loving kindness and faithfulness of God. Sorry, I lost my spot here. And then verses 5 to 8, sorry, he, the heavenly host, praise the Lord for his faithfulness and loving kindness. In 9 to 13, it's the faithfulness and loving kindness of God to all his creation. And then in verses, uh, 14 to 18, it's the faithful and loving kindness of God to his people. So I want to look at these three little sections right in verses 5 to 18. So he's expounding there the loving kindness and faithfulness of God. The word for loving kindness is the word said. It's a beautiful word in the Hebrew because there's no single English word that kind of fits like an equivalent to this one Hebrew word. It means an unfailing love, a kindness, a goodness, a desire, a zeal for the recipient of this love. It's mostly used to describe God's covenant love for His people. The chesed of God. It's His loving kindness, His grace, and His faithfulness to His people. And the other word he uses... Is the word faithfulness, and it's the word imuna, and it means the hope of the honesty or the steadfastness, the trustworthiness, the faithfulness and fidelity of God for His covenant people. In other words, He is absolutely to be relied on. And you say, well, wait a minute, psalmist, how does this all work? Has God indeed forgotten His people? And of course, we know the answer is, no, God hasn't forgotten His people He's taken them to Babylon because they've been so addicted to idolatry for so many years. God will say, I'll take you out of there and I'll put you right in the plum depths of the idolatry and depravity. And you're going to spend 70 years surrounded by nonstop depravity of the lowest and most basest kind in Babylon. And I will once and for all rid you of your addiction to idolatry. And the people of Israel will come back out of the land and they'll never turn back to idolatry again. They will be faithful to a degree to God for the rest of their days. They'll never go back to it. So God is God is working. In fact, God is exercising his loving kindness and his faithfulness to his people by giving them what they've so-called wanted for so long. So they're so sick of it that when they leave out of Babylon, they'll never go back. So God is, in fact, exercising loving kindness and faithfulness. Well, in verses 5 to 8, and what I want to do for us is just use this as a way for us to say to each other and to the Lord, there is none like you, O God. None like the Lord our God. In verses 5 to 8, the heavenly host praise the Lord for his faithfulness and loving kindness. Notice the... Uh, The noun phrase they used there. In verse 5, he talks about the assembly of the holy ones. In verse 6, he talks about those in the skies. And then in verse, the second part of verse 6, talks about the sons of the mighty. And then in verse 7, he talks about the council of the holy ones. Those are all phrases used to describe all the heavenly host. These are the angelic forces living and residing up in God's God's heaven in spirit form. And he says to them, listen, who in the skies is comparable to you? In other words, of all the supernatural beings that you have created, who can compare to you? None. Who is like you among in the skies? Sorry, I beg your pardon. Verse eight, who is like the almighty God? In other words, there's none that can compare to you of all those supernatural beings. He says in verse 5 that they praise the wonders and the faithfulness of the Lord. The wonders there is the idea of the works and miracles of God that cause the onlooker to stand amazed and in awe. Can you imagine? Seraphim and, and cherubim and all the different hosts and orders of the angels, all the heavenly hosts stand by and watch what God does. And they literally stand there with their mouths hanging open in awe and amazement. The Aussies have a great word for it: it gobsmacked. They just—they don't know what to say. They, they can't find a word. They says the Bible says they praise your wonders, O oh God. They praise the wonderful things that you have done. The heavens praise the wonders of the Lord. The word praise there means to extol, to tell, to declare. Remember the seraphim in in Isaiah six standing on either side of the train of the Lord's robe, and they never cease crying out one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. What does that mean? That means that everything in God's creation declares and describes and praises God for His glory. They never stop crying out, The heavenly hosts praise the Lord. In verse 7, The Lord God of hosts is greatly feared by the heavenly hosts. The Lord God of hosts, the God over all the hosts of heaven and earth. That phrase there, the Lord of hosts, literally means that. Every group, every gathering, every congregation of angels or demons or nations or peoples is under the authority of the living God. He is the Lord God of hosts. He's God over all the hosts of the angels and all the hosts of the demons. They all fall under his authority. He says, they are greatly feared. I find it amazing. You go to the New Testament and you read the stories about Jesus coming and casting out demons and they all have a fear of him. They all recognize him. You're the Holy One of Israel. Have you come to torment us? They all recognize Jesus' authority over all of them. So he is the Lord God of hosts and he is greatly feared. And the idea there is to be in a great and terrible dread and awe of, to be frightened of. So the whole host of heaven, seeing who God really is, seeing the majesty of who he is and the awesomeness of who he is and the wonder of all his works, the the amazement of his majesty and his holiness and his glory, and it causes them to tremble in fear. I love again, Isaiah 6. And I never noticed it for a long time, but the seraphim take their wings to cover their feet and to cover their uh, hands, I think it is, and then to cover their faces, sorry, to their feet, to their faces, and to they fly. But they cover their faces. Why is that? And I think what it is, is that the sight of God in all of his holiness and all of his righteousness is so overwhelming that they can't even bring themselves to pull the wings back and look for a moment at God. They hide their faces in fear of God. That's our God. Who is like the Lord our God among all the supernatural beings in existence? None. Lucifer tried. One only tried. To exalt himself, I will be like the Most High. And God cast him down from heaven. Jesus said, I saw him fall like a star out of heaven. And he hit the air like a stone dropping. He fell, took a third of the heavenly host with him. He tried to exalt himself. He tried to be like God. And it was made with a powerful impact. There is none like our God. There is no God like our God. Verses 9 to 13, the faithfulness and loving kindness of God to all of creation. You can just go through it quite quickly. He says, the Lord rules over the heavens. I was watching, get watching YouTube once in a while. And I started watching these tsunami pictures. It was really amazing. You see the water just kind of like go back and back and back and back. You think that's well, gone a long way back. And people start of standing there looking and you can kind of see them scratching their head wondering what's going on. And the water just keeps going back and back and back. And all of a sudden the water starts coming back in again. And you see this incredible wave of water come up and it hits the beaches and hits the houses and the cars and just throws. There was a huge, uh, Coast Guard vessel and this wave of water picked it up like a toy boat and just tossed it almost like casually. Huge water. And you watch the one picture of the tsunami that was in uh, Southeast Asia, I can't remember the exact country now, um, when it just wiped out and destroyed thousands and thousands of hectares, and many, many people died in it. And you see this huge wall of water just rushing through the city, and cars being towed away, and, and trees and buildings knocking over. And you can see people up on, the, on the, the high buildings, and they're filming with their cameras. And there was one guy as he's filming, he's watching all this thing, and all he kept saying over and over again in English was, pardon us, oh my God, oh my God, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end. Oh my God, it's the end. I thought, isn't that amazing? And yet the Bible says that the Lord rules over the oceans. He holds them back. He stills the waves when they rise up. Our God is in control. The one thing that man cannot get his head around controlling is the power of weather and the power of waves. But our God controls it. There is no God like our God. The Lord possesses the heavens and possesses the world and all of its inhabitants. He created the north and the south. He created creation. And Tabor and Hermon, two mountains, shout for joy at God's name. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> the rocks cry out in glory to the Lord. We were in a worship service one time and the strangest thing happened. Um, this fellow got up and he was a school teacher and he had this big rock. And he walked up the front with his giant rock under his arm, and he said, "You see this?" We said, "Yeah, it's a rock, man." And he said, "If we don't praise the Lord this morning the way we're supposed to, this rock will cry out." And he just plunked it down on the table, and he went back to his seat. And we all sat there. And you know, it, it sounds really strange and a little bit, you know, kooky maybe, but it was a really cool lesson. We are designed to give glory to God. And, and the psalmist says here, listen, Mount Hermon and Mount Tabor, they shout for joy at the glory of God, the power of God, the loving kindness and faithfulness of God to all of his creation. His creation cries out in a voice that we can't hear, but it worships and praises a God. There is indeed no God like our God. I want to focus for the end a little bit here on verse 14 to 18. The faithfulness and the loving kindness of God to his people. We who trust the Lord, our God, for salvation are considered his people. So when it speaks in here about the people of God, that includes us by implication. We are trusting in the same God that's speaking about here. We trust him through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have salvation. So we are his people. And we saw last Sunday night, he says here about the righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne or God's rule. And we saw last Sunday night that God's righteousness and justice, what they are. We could say very simply, his righteousness is simply this, his state of being in the right. His justice is the outworking of his righteousness. The Lord our God is a God who is right who does right and who makes others right. And you can actually see it right in this passage. Who is like the Lord our God? To whom will any of us be able to compare him? God rules as the faithful king over his people. He rules as the king full of loving kindness over his people. Who is like the Lord our God? There's none. And yet somehow I think we treat God so flippantly and so carelessly, we fail to realize there is none in all of existence like the Lord our God. He's worthy and He deserves our praise. He deserves our love. He deserves our delighting in Him at all times and all places. In verse 14, He says, Loving kindness and truth go before Him. And we said earlier, his loving kindness is his special, unfailing love, grace and kindness and goodness to his covenant people. God's love and his truth go before him. In the ancient times, times of David especially, when a king was coming to a town, and he would come with some of his counselors and some of his mighty men, he might have a whole troop of soldiers with the swords and the spears and the shields and all that, and they're all mounted on horseback, and they come riding up to a town. And if they came suddenly to the town, the town people might be terribly afraid. What's this king doing here with all of his soldiers and so on? And so what they would do is they would send a messenger ahead. He was called in the Greek a euangelion. It's a cool concept. And he would go and he would say, guess what, townspeople? Your king is coming. Your king full of glory and majesty and kindness and love and grace. He draws near. Prepare to meet your king. Remember John the Baptist? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was going as a euangelion to prepare the way of God. So as Jesus came, they were ready to receive him. And that messenger would go out and he would bring the message of hope and peace and love to those townspeople. Your king is coming and he's coming in grace. He's coming in kindness. He's coming in loving kindness and truth. And you already can see the parallel, can't you? The Lord our God is coming and He's coming soon. He's coming in power and great glory. And He has sent us out into this world with the message of the gospel to tell the peoples, the nations, that our God is drawing near and He's coming and He's going to judge the people. But He first sends out a message of loving kindness and truth. And He says, in verse number 14 let's read it again righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne loving kindness and truth go before thee who is like the lord our god who is like him who is not just coming in judgment and you see, you can see it right back in the garden of eden can't you he draws near and he calls out where are you because he wants adam to be rep- prepared to meet him he draws near To us, his people, and he sends his loving kindness and truth. That is the grace of God. He had every right. He would have been absolutely righteous. His justice would have been upheld. His holiness would not have been marred for a second if he had set foot on this earth and wiped out inhabitants because of our sin. But he sent loving kindness and truth ahead of him. Who is like a God, like our God? There is no God like our God. You can't even begin to compare him to anything that you know and relate to. In verse 15, he says, his people are blessed to hear the joyful sound. That's the sound of loving kindness and truth. Those people who heard that message, they are blessed. But the psalmist doesn't just say, blessed are the people. He says in verse 15, how blessed? In other words, you can't even calculate how blessed you are that God has sent a message of loving kindness and truth to you before He comes in judgment. That's a God like no other. And we are blessed like no other people in the world. And you know what, brothers and sisters? I have a library full of books. I have every blessing of Bibles and and tools to study and time to study. I live in a country that allows me the freedom to study. I have so much, and I take it for granted. I fail to realize the immense blessing that God has poured out on me, not just in the grace that He saved me, not just in the blessings of Bibles and study tools and all that stuff, just the tremendous blessing of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. How blessed are we and how quickly we take it so easily for granted. He said, how blessed are those people who hear the joyful sound. Who is like the Lord our God, sending loving kindness and truth before him so that we may hear the joyful sound. Your king is coming and he offers you terms of peace. What what must we pay? Well, here's the deal. Every payment none of you can afford, but the king himself has already made payment in full. And he has heard, he has seen of the travail of his son's soul on a cross, and he said, it's enough. I accept the payment, and now I offer terms of peace to my people if they will simply believe. Notice verse 15. He said, His people walk in the light of His countenance. It means that we walk in the light that shines from the face of the Lord our God, the light of the glory of God. Where is that to be found? In Christ alone, right? Let's take take your Bible, stick your finger in the Psalms and go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it is. Or 2 Corinthians 3, if it may be. Yep, 2 Corinthians 3. Second Corinthians 3.18, this is what it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Let's keep reading. He says, "Therefore since we have this ministry, we have as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things because of shame, the things hidden, sorry, because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving" Unbelieving, That they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as bond servants for your sake. Verse six, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's exactly what the psalmist is talking about here. They walk in the light of your countenance. Countenance is the idea of your face. So the people of God have this tremendous blessing. We walk in the light of the glory of Jesus' face. We are privileged to be able to see the glory of God in the face of Christ as we read through Scripture. How blessed are we? How gracious is our God. How unwavering is his righteousness and his loving kindness and his faithfulness to his people. And he finally says, we'll close with this one, his his people rejoice in the name of the Lord. The name of our God as Lord means the covenant keeping God. When you see the word Lord, capital L, small capital O, small capital R, small capital D, it's the idea there behind that is the covenant keeping God. And a covenant is an unbreakable bond that has been formed and fashioned in blood. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So that covenant keeping God, that's the one whose name we rejoice in. The Lord is the name we rejoice in. Every time we speak his name, our Lord, we're rejoicing in a covenant keeping God. We're restating that we are in a covenant covenant relationship with God that cannot be broken. That rejoicing he speaks of is not just a little joy. This is a joy that's wildly exuberant. And I don't mean something that's untoward or fleshly or anything like that. I just mean a pure, holy joy that is unrestrained in God. The joy that sits, gets you to sit there with mouth hanging open and tears streaming down your face because you're just amazed at who God is and the God that we serve. It's a rejoicing with a great joy. It's a rejoicing with a shout of joy. The life of the people of God who've experienced his loving kindness and faithfulness is a life overflowing and abounding in joy. It's not merely joy for what we have gained. It is joy for what we see in God. The source of their joy is in his name. Now, one thing we didn't talk about at all, Looking at the attributes of God is the way the names of God in Scripture reveal Himself. He uses all these amazing names, all these compound names of Jehovah that describe Him, all His characteristics. And you can do a great study, go through the Old Testament, look at the Hebrew words, all the words for the name of God. It's amazing how they unpack who God is and what God is like, just the names alone. And the psalmist says, they rejoice in the name, in your name. In other words, they rejoice in who you are and what you are. One of the reasons why I want to do this series on the attributes of God on Sunday nights is that we might see who God is and all the glory and all the wonder of who he is, but not just to store up theological data in here, that it might drive us to rejoice. It might drive us to rejoice and love and serve and just sing for joy in our God. The source of our joy is His name. The names of God are how He reveals Himself. We said that. We rejoice because God has poured out His loving kindness. We rejoice because God has worked all those wonders. And we can go back through Scripture and look at all the wonders that God has done. And we can visualize a little bit in our minds some of those things. Just the flood, for example. Think about that. He calls the whole, have the heaven or the earth, sorry, to be covered in water. And he describes how deep it is, and that's an amazing thing in itself. And I, one of the things I really hate—I hope there's no new mums in the room, or not about to be new mums—but one of the things I really hate is Precious Moments Noah's Ark. Every time I see one of those, I want to rip it off the wall because it totally distorts the image. I know I'm a meanie; I don't like Precious Moments. Precious Moments stuff is—you know what Precious Moments is, right? You know what, oh my goodness, Gabrielle, you're laughing. You know what Precious Moments stuff is? It's a really cutesy-tootsy thing, you know, on a little boat, about this big, and there's a little Noah sitting there with his little little beard, and there's like a giraffe. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Precious Moments is like this really cute, you can put it in your kid's nursery room. But when you stop and think what happened in that scene... The the scholars estimate there was something like six billion people on the face of the earth. And all but eight. So that's five billion nine hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred, whatever it is, long number. They all died. And God covered the whole earth in water as judgment. And the angelic host said they praised the wonders of what he did. That's the God we serve. That's the God that we love. It's the same God who accomplished the salvation of all his people as one man hung on a cross and shed the very lifeblood that he had. One man who was willing to be cut off from everybody and everything. He lost it all on the cross. And you know, brothers and sisters, we can try and somehow put ourselves in the place of Jesus and think for a moment about those words that he said my god my god why have you forsaken me and not one of us can ever really know the full depth of what he meant when he said forsaken me so what am i trying to pay what am i trying to say here this is the god that we have to deal with this is the god that we rejoice and this is a god who is so faithful to us that he's willing to allow his most precious son to die on a cross that He might reconcile us to Himself. And we look at this, and I just sketch through this really briefly, a few things here and there. But when we stop and stand and look at the foot of the cross and look up at the Lord Jesus Christ, or even better, look over the garden and see the stone rolled away and the grave clothes and the meth, but the, the face cloth folded up nice and neat where Jesus' head was. And we realize that's the God that we have to deal with. We can truly say, brothers and sisters, there is no God like our God. Nothing even comes close. And we are of a people most blessed. How blessed are we who know and hear the joyful sound of the gospel and can flee to Him for salvation and can rejoice in Him all the days of our life. And one day this world will pass away and we will stand before the Lord Never again to leave His presence. Leave His presence. We have a great God, do we not? Amen. Why don't we pray? I think the pizza is on its way. should be here shortly. Loving Father, we come before you, O oh God. And Father, just those two words... Loving Father, your loving kindness, the unfailing covenant love, your goodness, your kindness, your gentleness, your grace, all mixed together, wrapped together, and extended toward us. And Father, in a sense, it is extended toward us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can call you our Father because you have begotten us again to a new and a living hope. And Father, we realize that your loving kindness never fails. Your faithfulness is new every single morning without fail. It would be easier, O God, for the sun to refuse to rise than for your faithfulness to cease Father, we thank you. We bless you. We would worship you, O God, with joy. And Father, we would say, there is no God like our God. There is no God in all the hosts of heaven. There is no God in existence. There is only you, and there is none like you. Father, we thank you for the fact that your loving kindness and truth has gone before you. The gospel has been proclaimed in our hearing. And by our work of the Holy Spirit, you have awakened us to faith and repentance. You have enabled us to see the glory of your works and your wonders. And Father, we rejoice in your name this evening. Thank you, O oh God, for all that you have done. Father, thank you for this day that we've been able to enjoy together as a church, worshiping and singing and sitting with the word of God open before us. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, for this church. Cry out to you, O God, that you would do a great work amongst all of us. Father, again, we ask that you would refresh and revive that love that we had when we first came to know you. Father, how easily it is that we have allowed the things of God, the wonderful glories of God, the wonders of the gospel message to be taken for granted. How easily do we put the worthless over the precious. Father, we ask you that you would do a great work in our hearts. Change us, O God, cause us to repent of sin, cause us to trust you fully and deeply, to walk with you every day, striving to see your will done in our lives. Father, we seek your blessing, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.